I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today, I'm joined by Foster Jordan, the CSVP of Charles Rivers Endotoxin Group. Foster has spent most of his career working with and around South Carolina's horseshoe crabs, the strange creatures whose blood keeps us safe. He joins me to discuss how his career parallels the changing attitudes towards horseshoe crabs, as well as the future of endotoxin testing and recombinant technology. Welcome, Foster. Thank you. Enjoying the conversation. (laughs) So let's begin with you. Can you tell me about your early experiences fishing for horseshoe crabs? Sure. It was funny you said my... uh you know, my, most of my career, actually I kid people cause it's the only job I've ever had. Um, you know, <laughs> well, like your entire career then. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even, you know, I don't even have a resume. So it's interesting. <laughs> the way I got involved with this was my, my father was an investor in a small company called Endosafe back in the mid eighties when I was an undergraduate student at Walford college. And I heard him talking about it. I was studying organic chemistry, And he had partnered with the person who had originally used the test for a pharmaceutical application. His name was Dr. Cooper, uh, Dr. James Cooper. He used it at John Hopkins University. He was a a radionuclear pharmacist who was making nuclear medicines. And the test at the time for bacterial endotoxins was called a rabbit pyrogen test. You took a, a New Zealand white rabbit and you diluted your product that you were testing for contamination in saline infused 10 mils into the ear of the rabbit. You monitored the rabbit's temperature for three hours. If the fever spiked more than three degrees, that was considered a failed test and that rejected the product. But, you know, these new nuclear medicines had, you know, half-lives of their uh, nucleotides of, of only 20 minutes. So the rabbit test was was ineffective for this. These rabbit tests just sound so inefficient. How did we get from there to using what we use today? Yeah. So, you know, it was really, I think at the time it was, it wasn't really about replacing the rabbit test. It was about finding a test that Dr. Cooper needed for these nuclear medicines. And, and, and when he did it and he made these first crude preps and they worked and he published that uh, in 1972, he was actually, I think he was actually on a grant from NIH. So it wasn't something that was patentable. Uh, it was public knowledge at the time, public information, because it was an NIH grant that funded the research. When he published that in 1972, I don't think he really thought anything of it. And as the FDA saw the the value of, of this test be replacing the, the rabbit pyrogen test, they also realized that it would be the first time that a, an animal model would ever be replaced with a regulated in vitro tests. So they decided to regulate the test itself. And what's interesting is even today, we're the only quality control test that's actually regulated by FDA. And we have the same license. Our license is 1197. We have the same license as a, a biologics manufacturer or vaccine manufacturer, right? And we're inspected by FDA twice a year. Uh, all our products have to be submitted and approved by FDA. So we're extremely regulated in the space, which is also important when you think about new technologies and how will a new technology be developed when we're so highly regulated and controlled and the, the amount of testing that was necessary to just you know show equivalency to the rabbit. But, but long story short, as the evolution of Endosafe, when I ended up in graduate school, I ended up going to uh, Endosafe and working for Dr. Cooper. We were very small. I was just four of us in the lab, and you know, obviously, one of the main things we needed was horseshoe crabs. 
Charleston was known for uh, having horseshoe crabs. But two things about Charleston. One is the population, or our South Carolina population is very strong, um, in addition to the fact that the largest physical horseshoe crab there is. Um, you know, I, I bled a female one time that from tail, the whole length of the female was basically a meter long. Okay. So it's very long. Right. Yep. So, so they're big, so you don't have to handle nearly as many to get the quantity of blood that we needed. But back in those days, the crabs were, were a nuisance. They were considered a pest. Uh, they tore the fishermen's nets up, especially the fishermen. And when they were bottom dragging, uh, which is where horseshoe crabs lay for eel and conch, that was a byproduct that they just didn't want to deal with. Many times they would just throw them up on the bank, let them die, compost them, grind them as fertilizer. Um, the only other commercial application for them at the time was to be used as bait. But again, thinking about just the pure amount of work, it just wasn't worth the fisherman's time to do it. So again, not very well-liked creature back then. So going back, you said that you've basically been working in this industry your entire life, and that is very unique. So can you go back to telling me about working for for your dad and doing the the early fishing? Long story short, so when I I left graduate school, uh, I was given the opportunity. Um, The company wasn't doing really well at the time, although the test had been mandated by the FDA to replace the rabbits. It was still a difficult competitive situation. So again, for us, it was tough. That's why they wanted me to come. I was one of the first ones to get up at, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning and go gather the horseshoe crabs. We bleed from April 15th to end of June. We bleed only when they coming up at high tides and mainly they come up at high tides after dark. So if you got a full moon and a high tide, crabs are going to be there. Okay. Be there <laughs> by the thousands and thousands. And in the early days, we couldn't handle all the crabs that were coming up. So it's gotta be kind of surreal. I can imagine a beach full of crabs. It is. And we you know, we had very selective fishermen that we work with because again, they a lot of them just didn't see the value of them. It took us a long time to get the get the attention of the commercial industry, get them to realize the value of the crab. But eventually we did. I would actually drive to the docks during shrimping season. Um, and and they, if they caught them as byproducts, I would just leave our card, our business card, and say, hey, call us if you catch any byproduct. I'll come pick them up. So what are the incidental benefits of using crabs for endotoxin testing? You mean in terms of this? I mean, I mean again, in obviously... Terms of- yeah. Benefits to the crabs, and oh, yeah. and you mentioned <laughs> benefits to the rabbits who don't need to be used for this anymore. Exactly. Number one, it's pretty much eliminated rabbit testing around the world. There's very little rabbit testing that's even being done. Every pharmaceutical company had these big housing houses with uh, rabbit colonies to run the testing. That that's no longer uh, no longer needed. And even that was only focused on the finished product. You couldn't run a rabbit pyrogen test on the incoming water and on the raw materials and on the vials and on the stoppers. But because LAL is such an efficient way of running the test, it lets a pharmaceutical company to to de-risk every part of their process from the incoming raw materials all the way through to the finished product release. So that's been a huge value to pharma because they have much fewer rejected batches. It's even had... Uh incidental benefit to the horseshoe crab population, at least in South Carolina, right? It's, it's a very strong population, even compared with populations up the coast. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and just again, the recognition, being on the Discovery Channel, being on, you know, Animal Planet, being in National Geographic, and people correlating the horseshoe crab to the 
you know, healthcare industry and the fact that you know it's kept keeps our drugs safe from contamination. I mean that that's that's enormous value to the crab. I mean I, I didn't even I mean I grew up in South Carolina and never even heard of a horseshoe crab until I got in the business. And you know I spent you know at least one or two weeks a year at the beach and never knew what a horseshoe crab was. So for for that to get that national attention, I think even now I mean you, you go anywhere I travel anywhere. And, you know, people say, what do you do? And if it gets to the horseshoe conversation, you go, yeah, oh, I saw that in that <laughs> or, or I saw that on Discovery. And I'm like, that's really cool. And and again, it's just and they ask a lot of questions about the crab. So that that's been beneficial. And the ability for us to to use our commercial power to be able to reinvest in a lot of just the horseshoe crab conservation efforts are being done because our ability to fund that because we are a commercial entity. That That's certainly been of value. So now moving on to the the competitor in this in this story, can you explain what recombinant technology is? Sure. So we are very highly regulated by the FDA. We're still the only validated animal alternative that's used for batch release. So mm-hmm. every new product that we make has to be approved by FDA. We have to submit the data. Usually takes six months. I mentioned that it took basically from 2003 to 2006 to prove to the FDA that the cartridges were safe and could be effective. And we got the license there. We get inspected by them biannually every two years. We go through at least a week-long inspection by FDA. And even today, every batch of cartridges that we produce is submitted to the FDA for release. We can't sell it until they release it. So basically what you're saying is that anything that is approved for human use, you know, anything that comes in contact with their blood it has to be QC'd by using this approved endotoxin test. Correct. Right. And our number is 1197, and that's the FDA registration number we have. So if you're looking for a, an officially approved FDA limulus reagent, if it doesn't have that license number on it, then it's not sanctioned by FDA. It's considered an alternate method, right. and you have to have pre-approval to use an alternate method. Right. But we always and always and forever, there's going to be alternative tests to anything that is the standardized approved test, and they might be used for any number of reasons. And so one of those is this recombinant technology. So can you explain how that works and sure. why it's why it so it doesn't use any horseshoe crab blood at all? So basically, with the the advent of recombinant technologies for protein production from therapeutics, uh, which is a big industry now, you know it. It was just a matter of time before people just realized that they could actually uh, you know, p- purify the, the factors from the horseshoe crab, uh, you know, put those in some sort of either insect cell or mammalian cell, express that protein, reassemble those, and, and mimic the horseshoe crab blood. So they are the protein. They are the amino acid sequences are the same. Um, it's just that they're made by, again, taking that, creating a master cell line with the transfected uh, limulus factors in it, and they're expressed in a cell line, and they're purified and reassembled. So, how does that compare with the cartridge technology? The natural horseshoe crab blood to form a clot has four primary factors: it has factor C, factor B, proclotting enzyme, and the coagulogen that actually forms the clot at the very end. In chromogenic reagents, which is the, what is used in the PTS cartridges, you use three of the four: you use factor C, factor B, proclotting enzyme, and a clear substrate that actually turns color 
uh, if that sequence is activated and amplified. But there's a lot of other things that we don't know what's in the horseshoe crab. There's a lot of other proteins. There's a lot of other stabilizing things in the blood. So we don't know exactly everything that's going on. We do know that those are the three primary factors. So those are the ones we sequenced. Some of the other and, and, and expressed, and we're reassembling those, and those are the ones we're using to, to do our R&D with our development reagent. But some competitors are only using a single factor. They only use factor C, and they use a, basically a forogenic substrate because the amplification of the technology of the horseshoe crab blood comes from factor C to factor B to proclotting enzyme. If you only use the factor C, you miss the amplification step, so you need a much more sensitive spectrophotometer and substrate. That's why you use a fluorimeter. Okay, but if you think about it, that's not apples to apples to the to the horseshoe crab. None of them are, right? So here here's the biggest problem. When we converted from rabbit pyrogen testing to limulus, there were literally hundreds of thousands of side-by-side tests run. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does the rabbit have a fever? Yes. Did the LAL give positive? Yes. Did it, did the rabbit have a, a fever? No. Was the LAL test negative? Yes, it was negative. So so both negatives and positives were 100% correlated to either, right? In real samples, real live world, real live testing. Well, think about it. That that's There's no more rabbit pyrogen testing, right? So the, to be able to ever go back and do a direct correlation to to pyrogenicity is, is not possible anymore, right? Because remember, this is not a quantitative test for the detection of endotoxin. It's a safety assessment test. Is that drug going Just to a pass create a fail. Exactly. Yeah. Is it going to create a pyrogen reaction when it's injected into people? So the fear is, is that people rapidly accept that microbes are different, right? If you're a microbiologist, you know that salmonella grows differently than Pseudomonas, grows differently than Ralstonia, grows different than, you know, say, a, a, another type of fungus or an aspergillus. Everybody knows that. But for some reason, um, people don't get that it's the same with endotoxin. Endotoxins that come from Pseudomonas are different than endotoxins that come from Salmonella, different than endotoxins that come from E. coli. And they have very different pyrogenic effects on people. Okay, so we're missing that direct biological link and correlation back to the the biological model. That's what's scary to me is how do you know that if the numbers are slightly different, what is that slightly different? Is it going to be enough to matter or not? And we won't know that until we actually run the experiments. All right. So what would it take for recombinant technology to become compendial and safe? So our approach is to, you know, right now, the data that we see shows that all recombinant technologies, including ourselves, are under predicting the actual reagent. And in some cases, they're under predicting greatly. The question is, has LAL just been oversensitive for the last 40 years? And that's why we've never seen a positive, meaning we've never seen a a pyrogenic reaction on on a properly executed LAL test or not. And and the only way to know that is to do what we're trying to do is one is generate as much side-by-side data as we can around known contaminated samples. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're collecting 250 samples around the world. This is just water. Wait till you get into product. This is just water. <laughs> so we're collecting 250 samples from all around the world. We're using our Acugenics lab, which is the world's leading bacterial identification company. We're using our Acugenics labs to identify what type of gram-negative bacteria is in that water. And then we're running the correlation to traditional. 
So we're trying to establish with a statistician what do we think is equal, right? What is the same? So if it's if you get a two and one and a two point five, is that the same or not? So we're trying to do that. But where we see differences, you know, we're going to have to set up some sort of what we call a rabbit pyrogen or some sort of biological test. I mean, think about it. LAL's been seeing these for 40 years, right? And there's 50, there's over 80 million tests a year that have been run uh, or that are being run annually. So it's been validated many, 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 many times over. But that process is going to be very difficult to replicate with the recombinant. We can do it. Uh, it's just going to take years of uh, testing and side-by-side testing to show yeah. that it's safe and effective. Well, it's funny because we're really getting into the weeds of this, of how these processes work. But in this time of the COVID crisis, there's more interest than ever from people on how the pharmaceutical industry works and how drug development works and what it's going to take to actually get us a valid treatment or a vaccine. So can you explain how this endotoxin testing would fit in with this process? Yeah. So one of the things that that I always worry about and it's happening now specifically is whenever there's a fear factor or whenever there's a, a supposedly a threat to something, then what immediately happens is people want to uh, lower the the threshold or lower the regulatory requirements to try to get things to the market quicker. So we're always battling, do we have to do that safety assessment test? Do we really need to do that drug efficacy test? Is, do we really need to test 10,000 patients that have been exposed to that so we can prove the antibody test worked? How can we take a shortcut, right? And those are very dangerous things. And if you, if you look at what's just happened recently with the antibody test kits that are out there now, um, they got through too quickly. And there's many out there that are given too many false positives, too many false negatives. And so they're misleading a lot of government officials. They're misleading a lot of individuals on what is the spread, what is the direction, how many people have had it, how many people can go back to work, how many can't. So, so again, in a way, it set us back, right? Because you can't, a lot of data you can't depend on. So it's a really fine line between you know, accelerating the process but doing it pro- properly. And my concern on the recombinants is, you know, there's this fear of the horseshoe crab going away and there won't be a supply. But remember, only 18% of our test volumes now is in a cartridge form. So if all of our tests were sold in a cartridge form, we could more than be plenty. Yeah, more than quadruple the number of tests that we produce, right? And that's before we even optimize anything, right? Um, and if think about if our vendors also move to some sort of microfluidic technology, that would even expand that. You, I, I mean, I ran the numbers. You could take, you could actually go from seventy million tests a year to seven hundred million tests a year off the same number of crabs that are being bled today. But the reason that that's not happening is because that's a people want a shortcut. It's just the way capitalism works. It's the way people are. They want a short-term gratification. And by bypassing the FDA, by bypassing the regulatory requirements, by bypassing having to get a biological license like we did, taking three years to get PTS approved, they want to use this as a way to accelerate something to market and get it adopted. And in my view, it's a very scary process. Yeah. Well, and it comes from people being scared. They want this and they want it now. And that's a perfectly understandable desire. But when something is going to be administered to so many people, it really needs to be as perfect as it could be. Absolutely. And, you know, and right now, if you think about the 
the state of the world. I mean, you know, we're shutting down the whole world because, you know, uh, you know, people are dying. And, 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 and think about that. I mean, think about everything that we're doing to protect people's life now. And it's the same on the horseshoe crab. Do we really need to, to lower the standards? Uh, or, or do we need to push people to use a, a test that may be more expensive, but it's safe and it's proven to work. And it actually does two things. It, it helps, uh, it helps the stabilize the horseshoe crab population and it allows for a lot more tests to be produced in a short period of time and it also keeps the FDA regulations and it's proven safe. Yeah. So looking towards a potential future getting away from the somewhat depressing present, do you think that these recombinant reagent tests could ever be licensed by the FDA sometime in the future? I don't know. That's our hope. We've talked to the agency. We've opened up the conversations with the agencies. We hope they do. I just hope that it doesn't take uh, some sort of disaster, healthcare disaster, uh, for that to happen. Because my concern is once the barriers to entry have been lowered, um, it's not going to stop at one competitor. It's going to be multiple competitors. And they're going to all be coming at it from a different approach. So the next thing you know, you know, right now I said it's it's very predictable. If you buy an Endosafe reagent, you buy a Lonza reagent, you buy a Walker reagent, they're all going to give you pretty much the same numbers. They're different assays, but they'll give you the same numbers because they're all standardized and regulated the same way from the same raw material. Wait till you get 15 different competitors coming in here with 15 different cell lines of of different some factors you know some have factor c only some factor c factor b some have the full cascade some of them one substrate and another they're all using different reference standards because the government can't keep up with making enough reference standards to supply all the becomes exponential yeah it's just going to be fragmented and and now you know what that's going to do now when drug companies ought to be putting 100 percent of their efforts on trying to find a cures for diseases now they're going to have to step back and go oh lord now i'm going to have to make sure that the technology i'm using to release it is safe right yeah yeah then they're going to have to start having people experts in their own qc labs which they shouldn't be doing they should be focusing on making drugs not focus on being experts in endotoxin let the fda and let us do that okay uh there's no reason to, to to for for this to happen so I know that Charles River has actually gotten into the recombinant game. So why did Charles River decide to develop the full recombinant LAL cascade? Mainly because if we're successful in in validating it and showing it and formulating it to be equivalent to the natural, then it could be used interchangeable with any hardware software that we sell already in the space, right? So it would be if if a customer's using um, an Indosafe cartridge now. And let's say we could get the FDA to regulate a recombinant cartridge in the future, that would be invisible to the customer. They wouldn't have to buy new hardware, new software, or reinvest SOPs, procedures, or processes uh, because it would be seamless to them. And if we do it under the FDA regulatory umbrella, it would be even more seamless to them because, again, we could show equivalency, right? So we they could right. transition under All the, the same boxes get checked. Exactly, right? Yeah, I guess to think about it in a more Pollyanna-ish way, it's a good to diversify this sort of thing because as we've proven, I think, pretty thoroughly in the past few months, we never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely yeah, one I mean, lesson I've never, taken away. <laughs> again, there's always, you know, you always need backups to backups. And, you know, you know, we've always kept enough crew to be able to get through one or two years where we couldn't, you know, bleed if there was a red tide or hurricanes or things that would just completely disrupt our ability to catch crabs. So yeah, I mean this is certainly I do believe the industry will evolve into a a a sort of hybrid. So I'm not so much 
against the recombinant technology as I am the deregulation of it. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I think the technology can be used. There's a lot of work to be done, and we there's things we don't understand on why we're seeing differences, right? Um, but we'll figure that out over time. But the question is, I still think that's going to be done. It should be done under a standard regulatory control process where we know that if vendors go through the recombinant process and they develop a formula, they're going through the same you know, sort of regulatory due diligence and, and focus and validation that we are. If it's going to be done, it's got to be done right. Right. Correct. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you're very, very passionate about the fishermen that you work with and, you know, the industry in South Carolina in general. So is it true that when you work in this industry, even for a little while, it kind of gets in your blood and you just can't, can't quit it? It does. I mean, most <laughs> people that work with me or with us, we've been together for many, many, many years. I mean, even if there's, you know, the distributors, I mean, when we first started this business, we only sold directly in the United States, but we sold through distributors in India and in Korea and in the UK. And those people are now employees of Charles River. Um, maybe maybe I bought them and they stay, but maybe their employees stay. But, you know, again, I have relationships with people for many, many years. A lot of people stay in this industry for a very long time because if you are passionate about it. It is very important. And there's a lot of work to be done to, to save the species. And we've got to get our message out that we have been successful. We have successfully done it. And it's a very critical part of the global supply chain. I tell our employees every day, think about it. 50% of the world's pharmaceutical production comes through a vial that we produced or a cartridge that we produce, right? And it can't go to the hospitals until it's released in a QC lab that has one of our pieces of equipment or utilizing our reagents in that central lab. So I, I think it's even been more obvious as we go through this the COVID-19 crisis when we see the increased demand on our products and services because People are just, they need everything from more syringes to more IV bags to more needles to more saline to developing vaccines. So, so again, the more production there is, the more the need for our product. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank well, you so much for taking bring the time. Bring on all competitors, to, to, right? Bring on all technologies. <laughs> bring all competitors. Let's just, like, let's, let's keep everybody safe on, yep, and make yep. the playing field fair. I mean, that's all we want. Well, that's all we can do. That's all patients can ask for. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Foster. This has been really interesting. I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah, I enjoyed it myself. It's been yeah. A, yeah, been at it a long time. <laughs> yep. Well, that's why you're the expert to go to. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much.